Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My returning guest today is journalist Paul Dunoyer, who joins me to discuss his book, Conversations with McCartney. Paul first interviewed the McCartneys in 1979, and from 1989, it's likely that he spent more hours in formal recorded conversation with Paul than any other writer. This book pulls these interviews together and paints a really vivid picture of later period Paul and how he came to terms with his Beatle legacy. Paul Denoyer, hello, welcome back to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm very well, Joe, and it's uh, it's great uh, to be back. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, last time we met, uh, a couple of years ago, we spent an hour or so talking about your book about John Lennon and we must return to the other side of the playground to talk about uh, Mr McCartney and in particular your book that came out in 2015 Conversations with McCartney uh, which quite obviously collected together uh, the numerous interviews that you and Paul conducted over a kind of 30-ish year period. What inspired you to collate these together and produce this book? Well of course I knew that I was sitting on all of this material and it was quite an obvious thought really why don't I see about putting them all together. And I did go on to think, I've read quite a few McCartney biographies. Some of them were okay, some of them were very good, but in none of them was Paul's voice very much present. And indeed, um, they were usually written by people who'd never or scarcely met Paul. Um, and I thought, well, it would be great to have a book that's got Paul's own presence, his own voice coming through it. Um, and so I thought, well, I've got the material to do that, you know, so let's have a bash. And the um, the next step was to get Paul's permission. Uh, because firstly, I, I wouldn't have liked to do a whole book about him if he wasn't keen on me doing it. But secondly, a lot of the interview material was done for MPL, Paul's own company, MPL. Because over the years, as well as the journalism I did with um, Paul for various magazines, I did quite a few jobs uh, for Paul at MPL, uh, writing sleeve notes or putting together tour programmes, electronic press kits, so on and so on. Um, in other words, a lot of the material, strictly speaking, was in the uh, copyright of uh, MPL. So I needed to get Paul's go-ahead to use that as well. And he was, um, he was, he was fine with that. He said he didn't want to be actively involved in the book and he wouldn't be... Um, promoting this he just wanted me to go ahead and I I was to send chapters occasionally through to his office for people to check that it was uh, on course and I did that and in the end they said no don't bother it's, it's it looks it looks fine so that was okay and then they they gave me access to Paul's um, archives his, his photo archives which are enormous as you can imagine and mm. I had the, uh, the chance to pick some things from that. And then the last thing was the cover itself, which, as you remember, it's a black and white picture of Paul in, I guess, in late Middle Age. It's um, not that old a picture, probably from the um, 2000s. And I was pleased by his choice of picture. He said he wanted the design to be a bit like the cover of John Lennon's um, In His Own Right, which has got a black and white picture of John with an actual, I think it's a blue border around it. In this case, he wants a white border. That was fine. Interesting that he should be harking back to a John Lennon book, you know, the first the first book by a Beatle, probably, wasn't it? And um, 
So that was a nice touch. And I also liked that he was choosing a picture, but he looks good in it, but he's, he's certainly an old, a much older Paul. He's in, um, as I say, he's in late middle age, um, maybe hmm. early old age, you know, whichever way you look at it. Um, because the publishers of the book, they'd already fed through suggestions as, as they do. And they were clearly, clearly in favour of a picture of the very young Paul McCartney because you know, the very young Paul McCartney was very beautiful and he was the most fancied pop star on the planet, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and, um, and, and I thought, well, I can see the logic in that, the commercial logic, but that's not the Paul I talked to. That's not the Paul who, with whom I had these conversations. I, all my conversations with Paul were... No, I'm sort of 1979, I forget how old he was, but he was well into middle age. He wasn't the baby-faced young uh, Beatle Paul anymore. So I was really happy with the choice of picture. And once um, that had been uh, signed off, that was it. The book was ready to go. So Paul's been interviewed, as we know, countless times by, by countless different people. You are certainly in that, that top bracket of regular uh, people that, that interview him. Have you got any kind of sense, any idea why you got this rapport with him? I don't know. I mean, I, I was the kind of interviewer. I mean, I, I interviewed hundreds of other people. I usually got on, got on pretty well with everybody because I suppose I'd, I'd nurtured a suitable kind of bedside manner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a confrontational kind of journalist. And I always made sure, insofar as possible, that I was well uh, informed about the career. Now, that wasn't hard to do with McCartney because obviously I'd grown up from you know, from early childhood, just absolutely immersed in the work of the Beatles and then of Paul Solo. So it wasn't difficult for me to be well-informed. I think, uh, you know, I think he, he could relax. He knew that I was somebody who knew what I was talking about. And um, he knew from experience, I suppose, eventually, that I wasn't someone who was going to be nice to his face and then stitch him up in print. If I did have difficult questions to ask him, I did ask him then. So I wasn't, I wasn't holding anything back. I wasn't trying to um, trick him in any way. Above and beyond all that, we had this Liverpool thing going, um, which I never played up to, really. I, I, you know, I didn't go in there with an exaggerated uh, uh, Liverpool accent and um, <laughs> didn't actually ever make a point of asking him questions about Liverpool because I thought it's interesting to me, but it's not necessarily fascinating for the readers who aren't from that place. Mm. So I never pushed it. But lo and behold, what I found was that Paul brought up the Liverpoolness of his background again and again and again. And um, it's occurred to me lately that it wasn't just me, actually. I, I guess if you read the um, the lyrics book that he did in two volumes, mm. uh, I, I worked on that actually as an editorial assistant for NPR. And also, and even the Rick Rubin um, TV thing that he did for Disney Plus, you know, you'll find looking at those, he keeps bringing up Liverpool, and I'm sure. Mm. Ruben's got any idea what he's on about when he's talking about Liverpool, really. But you know, if it's Paul McCartney, you've got to kind of just go play along with it. And, um, so obviously this Liverpool business plays on his mind an awful lot. And, you know, you might well wonder why. And um, the only answer I've got, and this is just cheap armchair psychology, really. What I su suspect is that Paul's had a very strange life. You know, he, he had a very normal upbringing in Mm. in Liverpool, and a, not just normal, but actually a very secure, close family. But then at the age of around 18 or something, his entire world flipped over. 
he was somersaulted into a life that none of us can imagine mm. and for which he was um, ill-prepared. You know, nobody could have been prepared for life as a Beatle in 1962, going into 63. It was almost overnight, you know, from, from being these kids knocking around in, in clubs, they were suddenly the Beatles in capital letters. It was an extraordinary turnaround. And from that point on, for the rest of their lives, to the present day in Paul's case, not one person's ever interacted with them as a normal person. Yeah. They have never, Paul, let's keep it to Paul for the moment, but Paul has never been able to go into a room without everybody looking around. I've observed this myself at close hand a lot. Go into a room that's, that's a hubbub of conversation with Paul McCartney and the conversation dies. It's a tricky thing for people to deal with. You know, you know no wonder Bob Dylan is so strange. They all find their own way of dealing with it, I guess. Bob Dylan kind of retreats into his own strange Bob world. Paul wants everyone to carry on. He wants the conversation to start up again. And if need be, he'll just dive into the conversation and get it going himself. And, and, he, and he will do everything he can to kind of put everybody at their ease and persuade them what a normal guy he is. To the point that I know a lot of people are end up being suspicious. You know, they say, he's Paul McCartney, he can't be that normal. <laughs> <laughs> um, my own feeling is, and I might be wrong, but my my own feeling is he is actually as normal as he seems. It's not something he's pretending. It's something he's doing deliberately because he wants to keep his hold on reality. Um, mm -hmm. But for the time being, that 18 years of Liverpool life is the one, it's the touchstone for reality that he has, you know, because nothing ever, he's had great times ever since then, interesting times, but nothing he could ever quite rely on as being entirely real since that early life. It's interesting when you think of the other three, and Liverpool, obviously John will sort of never know what his relationship would have been like, but we do know that for nine years, he didn't even come back to England, let alone Liverpool. Yeah. Um, Ringo has, would appear a difficult relationship with Liverpool. He did some, he did like that, that famous interview on the Jonathan Ross show. Yes. Where it was quite disparaging. George, I don't remember much interaction with Liverpool when George, uh, you know, through the 80s and 90s, he was quite happy in Henley living in, in Friar Park. So really, as opposed to the other three, Paul has definitely had, if you, know, if you think of obvious things like Lipper and then the National Trust home, etc. And as you say, the fact that so often in interviews, Liverpool comes back into the conversation. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that of the three of them, he's definitely got that, that strongest connection. I think with, um, with Paul, his circumstances were a little different to the other three because he had this big clan, not just, um, well, he only had one living parent by that time, of course, mm. but he had, he had his brother, uh, Mike, not, not much younger than Paul, who was very much a boy about town in Liverpool, very much in the middle of the Liverpool arts and music scene. Um, his father, uh, Jim, stayed in the Liverpool area, just moved across to a posher house in uh, the Wirral, and beyond that, the whole McCartney clan, which is enormous, you know, to this day, everybody in Liverpool knows McCartney somewhere. The McCartney clan, anyway, is, a, is, is an ongoing um, facet of Liverpool life. So he had a reason to go back there whenever he could, you know. Um, whereas with the others, they had very fractured family setups, or else, in John's case, you know, there was only really his auntie um, Mimi, and he moved her to um, a house in uh, was it Bournemouth at the, at the earliest opportunity because... Um, it was a hassle for the Beatles' parents or uncles and aunties to try and deal with the, the post bags. 
it was just it was just a hard life. So they moved. They, the Beatles tended to move their elders away from the city, and and after that, they didn't really have any great, um, any strong reason to go back. Particularly um, with Paul, it was a completely different case. He could always go back for knees up on a Friday night. You know, it was always a big New Year's party and all the rest of it. You know, you know. So I think those things kept him in very much in um, kept the city on his mind, and he did later on develop more formal links through stuff like Lipper as well. From the book, it looks like most, but not all, of the interviews that you've done with Paul tend to take place either at MPL in, in South Square in London or at his home in, in Sussex. Um, did you... Yeah, well, if not, not his home quite, but his, okay. his, in the studio, the mill, which is near his uh, home. Um, I mean, it's a very big, very comfortable place, and he spends an awful lot of time there recording and rehearsing and hanging out and, and writing and so on. So he was... He was that was a relaxed place for him, whereas MPL in London is more of a workplace for him. Um, but then again, I would think the difference in tone or mood, it really depended on um, what he had to do, because even at the meal, he might have, uh, it might, might have been a break from a video shoot or a break from rehearsals. And um, there'd always be people coming into the room to say, Paul, sorry to bother you, but, you know, can I just check this, that and the other? Same in the MPL office, really. Um, he, tended, he tended to assign a chunk of the day. He's, he, he has people, personal assistants or whatever, who work out his diary very carefully for him. And he runs a fairly tight ship. Quite, he has a well-organised life, I would say. And so um, mm. if they say, you know, I can give you from two o'clock till half three or whatever, that tended to be the case, really. It wasn't, um, you know, it's not always, and it isn't always applicable to other rock stars. But he, he runs a fairly organised sort of existence. And that being the case, he wasn't distracted. He was generally kind of in the moment when he was talking to you, wherever it happened to be. OK. So, the, as you mentioned earlier on there, the, the first encounter that you have with Paul is a, this fairly chaotic one at a press conference in 1979, a part of the, the, the final tour that Wings would undertake across the UK. What was your memories of that, that first meeting? Why was it such a, a kind of a chaotic occasion? It was, uh, it was a pretty extraordinary event for me because um, I'd started work in London. I was on the staff of the NMA. I think it's fair to say that Paul's stock or reputation within the media, the music media in particular, wasn't especially high in, in those days. I mean, there was no question of it being a cover story or anything. It was a uh, a kind of, well, we've been offered this press conference and I could also do a longer interview with Linda if I wanted. And it was a bit, the enemy was kind of taking a leave. And they said to me, I mean, do you fancy going back up to Liverpool? You know, you go and see your mum and dad and you get your train for pay. And I thought, well, that's great. That's the least of it. I get to meet Paul McCartney, which will be the most extraordinary event of my life. It was at a stage in my life when it still seemed unimaginable that I would get to meet and talk to a Beatle. So I went up there and um, it was a, Pretty, I thought it was a pretty good show. What none of us knew was that this was going to be the final uh, Wings tour. They were still due to, um, after they'd completed the UK leg, they were still due to go to um, the Far East, uh, infamously starting off in Tokyo. And <laughs> in the year, of course, we know why that never got any further. Turns out, I mean, talking to Paul years later, he would say, I don't know what happened in Tokyo. I sometimes wonder whether I planted those drugs there myself. He, he never goes as far as saying I did do that, but he says, subconsciously I knew that I wanted it all to be over he wasn't happy with that final incarnation of wings so it was a slightly strange time um, 
the press conference I had to do with five or six other people. And it was a little bit tedious because the first, you know, bearing in mind that John was still alive, the question everybody wanted to ask, and always did in those days was, so Paul, tell us when the Beatles are going to get back together. And this was beyond tedious for Paul and extremely irritating because he was still at that comparatively early stage. He was nine years into his solo career and he still couldn't get anybody to stop talking about the bloody Beatles. You know, it was still so Paul of the Beatles. No, no, I'm Paul of Wings, actually. Mm -hmm. But it was very hard to get that across to anybody, you know. And um, So he probably wasn't on terribly good form, but he was pretty nice to me and he responded to the local accent again, I suppose. And I'd done a long interview with Linda before the show and she must have said, oh, this guy's all right or something. So it would have gone okay if I had enough presence of mind to ask any intelligent questions, but I didn't. I was too... I was too nervous, and I, I think I've said before that um, it being my first encounter with Paul or a Beatle, you have an almost out-of-body um, experience. You, you're so aware that you're now talking to him and he's looking at you that you imagine yourself hovering you know, uh, above the operating table, as it were, looking down at yourself talking to Paul. I was so self-conscious, and as I say, I know that nearly everybody else feels something similar to this as well. So I wasn't exceptionally stupid in this respect anyway. But it did take me a lot more time and experience before I could just talk to him and get on with uh, framing a, a decent interview. Something that we, we talked about when we spoke about John was this this view of the, which obviously you can give a really great insight to, because as you say, you were part of the music press in 1979, 1980. We spoke about that initial reaction to Double Fantasy and why some of the pop papers in the UK weren't as warm to it. And what do you remember about, you did touch on it there, but the reaction to things like Back to the Egg and McCartney 2, these, these kind of strange records that, that he, was, I mean, he was making around this time. Do you remember what the, the kind of sense of, of Paul was in the... The press at that point. At the end of the seventies, there was quite there was quite a bit of pushback against some of the things that Paul had done. I mean, Mull of Kintyre had been a sensationally big hit in Britain. Oddly enough, it wasn't in America. And Americans, I when I talk to, don't have the same sense of the of the horror that was felt by some some music critics, as, as well as Mull of Kintyre. That run of albums he'd made, they were very strange. In, in years to come, it's actually the strangeness of those albums that I start to cherish. I kind of knew that Back to the Egg was was not going to be up there with the all-time classics of Paul. And he himself, I think, is slightly dismissive of it now. But at the same time, some of it was just so mad that I thought, I absolutely love the bits of this record that I love. I really, I really love Arrow Through Me is a great song. This point of the, the uh, Winter Rose, the things... Things I love, but then when he starts going on about old Siam, sir, and going yeah. to Walthamstow, and then this great con lumbering conceit of the rockestra, which I can see lots of reasons why Paul, why people think, thought Paul is pretty much past his best now, you know, um, even though they didn't really regard Ram as his best. I, I loved Ram at the time, and I've always loved Ram and the first McCartney album. In the, throughout the 80s, I was a bit more pick and mix about the kind of things. It's very, not, not every McCartney album is something I would sit down and listen to all the way through, to be honest. But of course, nowadays, technology is such that that's not necessarily the way that you listen to your music. I can happily listen to McCartney all day, but I, I will have filtered out yeah. a few things along the way, you know. 
So yes, in 1979, it's fair to say that he wasn't at the peak of his critical esteem. So many of your conversations, obviously the Beatles creep the way into your conversations and that's no surprise. Was there a particular part of the Beatles story that he seemed to to bring up more often than, than others over the course yeah, of yes. the years? Yes, without a doubt. Um, I'd, I'd always been, I mean, part of the reason that, that we may have got on relatively well was that I have always been sincerely interested in all of Paul's uh, career. I mean, as a record buyer, I only got started with uh, Wings Wildlife, I think. That was the, about the first LP that I ever bought. Mm-hmm. And I knew the Beatles, obviously, as a child. But as a record fan, as a gig goer, it was Paul's solo career that I related to. And I was always keen to let him know that I was just as interested in his life after the Beatles. And he probably responded warmly to that because that wasn't his experience with nine out of ten interviews he had to go through. But when he did talk about the Beatles, it was nearly always the very end of the Beatles. It was this, this was the thing. Again, I, I, this does sound a bit armchair psychologist talking. <laughs> Imagine a therapist saying, this is the bit that he has issues with. You know, this is the bit that he needs to talk through to find closure. You know, all the terrible cliches that people use. But maybe there is a sense of that. Um, mm. I wouldn't have to necessarily push him. I wouldn't have to say, so Paul, you know, tell me about your... Um, Tell me about the, 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 how awful it was making um, uh, Let It Be. You know, actually, it wasn't as awful as that, all that. As we, if, we, if we turned to talk of um, Alan Klein or Phil Spector, uh, he was, he, it was no holes barred, really. He was much more reluctant to attack John. Uh, again, bear in mind, throughout all of my proper interviews with Paul, John had already died. You know, they were post-1980. It was an incredibly difficult area for Paul to cover in any um, in, in any way that people would find um, adequately sensitive. You know, almost anything he said was liable to upset people. So mm. very, very um, circumspect and uh, cautious and respectful in anything he said about John. But as for, as I say, as for uh, other circumstances surrounding the, um, the Let It Be album and the legal shenanigans that, you know, went on for a few more years into the 70s, the anger he felt was palpable and the sense of injustice actually that he was betrayed as the bad guy, the, the guy who'd taken the Beatles to court, the guy who'd started an argument with his old mates. And he, fe- he did, he clearly felt, and I think still feels that very deeply. So that was the thing he wanted to talk about, you know, not the happy days of Beatlemania. He didn't mind talking about that, but this was the stuff that he really wanted to uh, put on the record, you know. You mentioned John there. What was it like when he, when John would appear in a, a conversation when you were talking to him? And did the things that he say about John kind of change o- over the years, or was there kind of a, a recurring theme? I hadn't noticed within the, the scope of the interviews I did, and nor particularly has anything occurred to me in reading or watching any of the interviews that he's done in the last couple of years. His tone is still is still very respectful. It's affectionate. I mean, he, remem- he remembers the bad feeling, but again, if we could just I mean, fast forward a little bit to the Get Back film, mm. and that's a useful reminder that the, the real period of argument and bitterness between John and Paul and between Paul and the other three Beatles was actually a little later than we tend to, ima- we tend to remember it being, you know, and they got on, you know, they got on really well during... Um, the get back film the nastiness is still is still around the corner 
and I, I guess it really took place during the um, Abbey Road recordings more than more than anything. But even then, they could get it together sufficiently in the studio to put all that to one side. As we know from listening to the listening to the results, um, the affection between them and the mutual respect in the film is pretty visible. But that's because the chronology of the film is such that it predates the the actual absolute breakdown of relations that uh, that occurred and um, and and without thereafter held through uh, third parties, I guess through. You know, my lawyers are going to talk to your lawyers and blah, blah, blah. We, we each other, yourselves, don't need to talk to each other at all. And, of course, they, they didn't really um, accept maybe <laughs> coded messages from album sleeves or something. Did you ever get a sense of from Paul of what kind of made the friendship work between them? In Get Back, the, the eye contact is just remarkable. You know, it, it's funny because Yoko obviously is sat there the whole time pretty much. But if you if you watch John, he seems to be looking at Paul ten times more than than Yoko. Obviously, there are some nice affectionate moments with with Yoko in there, but they clearly, at this point, as you say, still had that connection there. What do you think it was that that made them mesh together so well? I, I think it's just it's something that Paul. Um, I think he would like to say more, but he can't say a lot a lot about it because it just looks big headed. And because it's so contentious, because the world, particularly the internet world nowadays, is so binary, you know, it's so people buy into their opposing uh, factions. He refers to this in songs, in, uh, you know, I was there, I was the one in the room, that was me. What he's trying to say is that everybody in the world thinks they're an expert on John and Paul. You know? mm. They all think they know what happened in a little room between John and Paul, but they don't. Nobody knows except me. John would know if he could tell you if he were here, but he's not. So I think he remembers it as being a far, one of far more mutual respect. John was older in, in, to an extent that mattered more at the beginning of their relationship because age differences do matter when you're teenagers. They don't really matter when you're 28. So that declined as a, as a variable in the equation. And what also changed was that Paul kind of bought John's respect because... Um, it was soon apparent that he not only did he know the words to Twenty Flight Rock or whatever the, he knew a lot he knew he knew a lot more he knew, he was more adept at picking up chords uh, inventing chord sequences and so on and um, I think they just found they could they taught they could teach each other a lot they had so much musical hinterland in common not only Elvis Presley and so on but old Tin Pan Alley stuff um, Paul would talk about that sometimes it's a, it wasn't you know Elvis wasn't ground zero for us we'd been listening to music. On the wireless, on the you know the BBC home service, we've been listening to music for years. So um, you know, we and we were analysing it. We're curious kids. You know, why does why does that verse take so long to turn into a chorus? Why do they have this prelude, this semi-spoken prelude at the beginning of the song? Why do they do that? You know, and they would try and do the same. And that was interesting. The, the, the technique of the craftsmanship of songwriting was something they'd imbibed separately, but listening to the same sources, I guess. And when they met, they had all of this in common to, um, to pool with each, uh, with each other and share their enthusiasm for. So um, mm. there's a lot of that going on as well. And then beyond that, the intimacy of being, in, being for all four Beatles, the things they went through in Hamburg, the travels, you know, in the, in the transit vans up and down the, not even the motorways, because they didn't have the motorways. So they went through so much that none of us can even guess at. So just to bring it back to the book again, uh, so the the bulk of the interviews start in that late 80s 
early 90s period, which is really when, from from my memory, as a slightly younger person maybe, Paul really kind of came back into the the game a little bit. Um, you know, he, obviously he'd worked relentlessly still through the 80s, um, but through things like Broad Street and, and press, etc., they weren't particularly well received. Um, but late 80s, Along Comes Flowers in the Dirt, which was a strong record with, with a lot of help, a fair bit of help from Elvis Costello. Why do you think that his reputation starts to recover around this time? And when you interviewed him in this period, did you get a sense that he was he was kind of happier in his own skin a bit by the late 80s? Initially, he was happier because he'd built a band around himself. You know, I mean, as you know, not since Wings 10 years earlier had he had... I mean, I call Wings a permanent lineup, but it wasn't a very permanent lineup. Now we had what he hoped was the beginnings of a new permanent lineup. And he had some very well, um, very well respected musicians, you know, Robbie McIntosh, Hamish Stewart, and so on. People, people knew these guys, and they, they could quickly hear that this was a very tough, efficient rock unit uh, forming. And Paul liked that. He liked that sense of having his band around him again, having a band around him again. And Within a few months after that, he started on um, this mammoth uh, world tour. And once again, he was getting reconnected to the audience. I can't remember if he told me this or someone else, but he said, bear in mind, but for 10 years throughout the 80s, I got no feedback at all except what I read in the papers, which was universally, universally hostile, semi-uninterested. That was the only response he got to being Paul McCartney. From that, you step out to the uh, the Maracana for the biggest gig in, uh, for the biggest gig in human history. You've got billions. You've got a sea of people who are absolutely ecstatic to be seeing you. They're roaring their love for you, and it's no surprise that that has been Paul McCartney's life more or less ever since, hasn't it? He had to cancel a few gigs when he had a short illness. He had to take two years off for the pandemic. But, you know, once that was over, he was just getting onto his age and setting up gigs again. He really lives and thrives, probably like the early Paul, on that response, that love of an audience. As we know, um, in the Beatles days, what was the big tension between them towards the end, before even before business and Alan Klein and blah, blah, it was his urge to get back on a stage. And the rest were not kind of, well, you know, this is, well, as I do, the others were not totally against it, but there wasn't any great enthusiasm on their part, whereas Paul, I think, I think he was desperate and I think he was dying to get back on that stage. And that was another beginnings of the eventual, eventually disruptive. He really loves, you know, he lives the sound of the crowd. He is, um, uh, he is that kind of performer. He does need his audience. You did interview him on that on that tour, didn't you? There's the, was yeah, there I interviewed him several times. Throughout. That, that was a particularly busy time for my interaction with him because I had to do I did a series of tour programs for him he wants to give these tour programs away for free to everybody who came and um, so I know that that's the biggest circulation of anything I've ever done <laughs> and of course they were they were his his opportunity to kind of edit his own magazine and uh, he was effectively my magazine editor they were designed to look a bit like a replica of about the size of Q magazine as it was in those days I spent days and days in, uh, in the course of, um, of those uh, tour programs. So it's where quite a lot of the interview material for the book uh, derives. You mentioned that he was back with a band. You spoke to almost all of Paul's band members, both that, that original 
kind of flowers in the dirt into off the ground era and then some of the, the people that play with Paul now did you get any sense from them as to what it was like to to be in a band with with Paul McCartney yeah, I, th- I think um I must have interviewed every single one of them from Flowers in the Dirt. I mean, as you, I mean, you'll know the Flowers in the Dirt lineup altered slightly for Off the Ground. Soon after that, he hit upon the lineup, which has been which he's maintained to the current day. By far the longest lasting uh, lineup, lasted far longer than the Beatles, far longer than Wings. Um, it's a very stable. That is a very stable lineup. And I, I talked to all of those people, um, the English and the Americans, and. Um, it was striking in every case, uh, this element of being somewhat stage-struck, because they are all, even the eldest of them, they were all of an age whereby they had listened to the Beatles in their bedrooms. You know, They'd all been through the strumming a tennis racket in front of the wardrobe mirror phase of being a young Beatles fan. They'd all been children or teenagers when the Beatles were almost uh, mythology, not not reality. Mm. And then at some point to get a phone call to say, you know, wouldn't wonder if you'd mind coming in and doing an audition. (laughs) (laughs) And they all had to go through that, each and every one of them, you know, they all had to go through this audition, probably with no great expectation of either passing or B, if they get the gig, of keeping the gig, because... We all know the history of people who played for Paul, you know, all the going back to Henry McCulloch and so many other people. It wasn't a, it wasn't a lifetime gig, was it? You know, so they probably had no terribly high hopes. And they all described the same sensation of having to play Paul's bass part or having to be the drummer who's keeping pace with Paul's bass part or having to play a George Harrison guitar part or whatever it may be. Or the sensation of being on the stage and being called upon to do this was for them... Um, absolutely unreal you know some to a much more intense level I suppose than me interviewing him because even I would get flashbacks and would uh, throughout my interviewing career I'd still get flashbacks and I'd remind it, be reminding myself oh, I'm in a room I'm talking to Paul McCartney it's an extraordinary thing you know that's come my way but for the musicians that that seems to be something they that they went through to an enormously intense degree and perhaps have never shake, been able to shake off. Is there a a type of person, do you think, a type of musician that he likes to, to have in the band over the course of those those two sets of bands that you spoke to? I would say that um, what we know um, what we know from the evidence is that to be a musician in Paul's band, at some point, you know, you've got to accept that you are a member of Paul's band. No, I, I think he's a reasonably open mind. He's not, he's not a tyrant. He's not a dictator, but. He, he does call the shots. And I think you've got to be temperamentally prepared for that. Not all of his musicians were, you know, down the years, particularly in the, in the Wings um, years. So that was pretty tough. But also he's demanding, you know, he's been auditioning um, musicians. He's been listening to musicians with a, an inquisitive ear. Just as I say in one, one point, every interviewer who goes to meet Paul is nowadays talking to somebody who's been doing interviews since before they were born. <laughs> and the musician who, um, who Paul listens to is following in a line of millions, or not millions, hundreds of thousands of musicians that Paul has been listening to with an inquisitive ear, analysing, judging, you know, his, his powers of judgment. And this goes for producers as well. It takes a pretty tough producer, I would imagine, to have an argument with Paul in the studio. And some of them we, ha- we know have. Good luck to them. But it's, it can't be easy, you know. As I say, Paul's got a 
he has not a confrontational personality, but at the end of each particular day, he is Paul McCartney and you just can't get around that. It's something you've got to accept and be prepared to work with. A part of the book that I'd, I'd really kind of made note of when I reread it in preparation for speaking to you today, where you describe meeting Paul in one morning in, I think in 89 or 90 on that tour, and he's been sent a biography of himself, which he's quite understandably and unsurprisingly pretty dismissive of, which is quite common throughout Paul's career in interviews when books come up about the Beatles or about about him as a quote about Revolution in the Head, a Q interview or an uncut interview a few years ago where he's particularly dismissive of it. Um, do you get any sense as to why this is, why he's, he's pretty kind of anti, almost still writing about him and the Beatles? Yeah, I, I think it adds to his sense of unreality um, to see so much written about him. Um, it must be like getting up every morning to read your own obituary or something. Um, this weight of commentary that surrounds him, I think he finds it easier to keep his feet on the ground, uh, to keep his sense of perspective. And these are, you know, the feet on the ground, the sense of perspective, the, the sense of proportion. These are very valuable assets to Paul McCartney. These are things he treasures and wants to hang on to. And reading and reading and reading and reading about yourself, I think, warps your sense of self, your sure sense of yourself. The book he was annoyed about the day I met him, it was Chet Flippo's book. Chet Flippo was a Rolling Stone writer. It's, it's actually a very good book. But glancing through it, what he picked up straight away, it's Beatles, 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 two paragraphs on solo career at the end. Mm. I mean, that is the geography to this day of beat Paul McCarthy books. And, you know, you can't blame the writers, but the writers are, almost without exception, I think, pretty much fascinated by the Beatles to the exclusion of what he did after. But I'm unusual in that respect. That is another distortion, I suppose, that he feels is inherent in those kinds of books. And um, Maybe Linda isn't paid sufficient attention, certainly not paid sufficient respect in terms of how important he felt she was. Those sorts of things bothered him. And the inaccuracies. Every mm. book, no matter how, my book's got inaccuracies. You know, the first edition is in the same as the second one. Every book, every article has got some niggling thing that's wrong and um to us as readers, or even to us as writers, it's it's no big deal. You know, it's it's a year out between friends. But to Paul, it really destroys the credibility of anything that people write about. You mentioned the lyrics book there. What do you think led him to release that? Was there any kind of great kind of plan behind releasing that at that particular point? Many people, me included, had said to him along the along the way, you know, Paul, you should write an autobiography. You know. Get your side of the story out there on record. I mean, because I obviously I offered to help him write an autobiography a few times, and he said, "No, I just don't really want to spend that much time looking back." But I guess he got into it. Um, I mean, later on, you know, mortality uh, looms, and he was probably thinking, "Well, time is not infinite." He got. He, I think he did most of it during the pandemic because I was proofreading it during the pandemic, so he must have done those interviews with Paul Muldoon pre-pandemic, more or less. Mm. But his life was um, less hectic than it had been. He wasn't touring um, at quite the pace that he had been touring. He probably just thought, thought well, there's, there's time and there's an opportunity now for me to actually not write an autobiography, but tell a great deal about my life and give my perspective on things channeled through the medium of the songs. 
which I think it'd suit him because he would say, you know, I am, um, I am a musician. That's what I am. And everything else that I want to talk about is incidental to the songs. You like to talk about the music as music, but you can't really talk, say much about music as music. It's not a verbal form and it doesn't lend itself to verbal expression or explanation. You know, as people say, you know, if I could explain what the music was, I wouldn't have to write it in the first place. It's, it's, it's some word that transcends words. Lyrics, however, do, of course, lend themselves to verbal commentary, verbal interpretation, verbal explanation. So it was an ideal, um, it was an ideal format, I guess, for him um, to do that. And, you know, by God, he really went for it. It's, it's an enormous book, isn't it? <laughs> just just tying in a little bit with what we were saying about Paul and, and a lot of the other books that have come out about him relating to to fame you have said in in some interviews that there are the odd occasion where you've had some more kind of social interaction with Paul where you've had a lunch or a, a dinner etc do you get any sense of in those occasions and also the the more formal occasions of the kind of tricks that he does to deal with the fact that as you said earlier when he walks into a room 99.9 percent of the room are going to be looking at him how does he cope with that yes um I remember he said to me I'm always surrounded by people who know me, but whom I don't know. You know, if you imagine Paul getting out of a car or a taxi to walk into a building. He's got to traverse, um, I don't know, six feet of pavement. More often than not, there'll be 14 or 15 people all staring at him, shouting at him, offering autograph books, whatever, you know. Actually, nowadays, it's just click, click, click of cameras. Um, and he said um, one quick mechanism that I developed was the thumbs up, which everybody now thinks is this corny, silly, macca cliche. But I couldn't stop what I was doing and go and talk to every person. At the same time, I didn't want to blank them and pretend that I didn't see them. Um, you know, because a, a typical rock star response actually is to stick on the dark glasses and walk like a robot through mm. the crowd, not looking mm. to left or right. That's a valid defense mechanism. I can see why they do that. But Paul's response that wouldn't be Paul you know he he turns around he, he, he gives the thumbs up he gives the cheery wave a wink he says daft things you know and, and how are you doing and blah 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 he does all he does all those kind of silly things which make him seem like a less serious person than he actually is uh, really it becomes this kind of pantomime um, fab macker and he's very aware of this panto character that he's, that he's created around himself which people will sometimes use as a, um, a stick to beat him with but he doesn't apologise for us. Um, other than that, he was, I remember saying to my wife, actually, we were talking about, we, we were having a dinner with him and we were talking about, because we were all from Liverpool, we were just talking about the big department stores you went to, you know, when your mum took you to the shops and blah, blah, blah. And he said, it's funny, that just the other day I went into TJ Hughes's, which was a big place in Liverpool. And I said, how can you walk through TJ Hughes's? You know, it's, it's actually very working class. It was a very working class department store. It wasn't, wasn't even a place with pretensions to... He said, well, what you do is you walk quickly, you smile at everybody, you get served quickly, you walk away and you wave. <laughs> so I think, I think he feels that if he goes on a tube train or something, a kind of invisible force field comes to his aid. Because very few people, I mean, you know, obviously there are tragic exceptions to this, but very few people really, really force themselves on famous people, I think, certainly with in Paul's experience. Most people are quite respectful. So he gets by, you know, and he's not lived the life of a hermit by any means. Years ago, I went to see an event, a Word in Your Ear event that, that you did with David Hepworth and Mark Ellen about 
probably about this book actually. And David Hepburn told this story, which you might remember, you might not remember. I think it's such a key Paul story where he said he was sat in the Pizza Express in Dean Street, which, as you'll know, is just around the corner from yeah. uh, from MPO. And that particular Pizza Express has these big glass windows that look out onto the street. And Hepworth was sat on his own on, on like a, a lunchtime waiting for somebody. And then Paul appeared walking down the street with Beatrice on his shoulders. This must have been, which dates it as about 2005, 2006. Yeah. And everyone saw him in that restaurant. And he, he clung on to Beatrice with, with one hand. And then he waved and smiled. Yeah. And he completely understands kind of what's required of him, which certainly George and Ringo you couldn't imagine them doing that. John probably would be the same, maybe in in the New York kind of area. You know, as you say, if, if you think of a, a Dylan or a Jagger, even or or anyone like that, you can't imagine them doing that. I think I think Paul's different in that sense. Yes, um, I, mean, I, I, I mean I can't offer any explanation for all those people's psychiatry, you know. But I mean, we're, we've, we've all got different temperaments and different dispositions. And uh, Paul, I think, was just he is just that way, you know. He doesn't like to he doesn't like to blank anybody. And I suppose he feels this is the professional responsibility that comes with all the fame and the riches, the success that I've got. You know, I've just got to, my part of the contract is that I, I play the nice, accessible Paul McCartney that they want to um, believe in, you know. Dare I, say, I think he is nice. I, I mean, I think, he's a, I think he's a decent guy and, and I can't, I'm not, his, I'm not his friend and I'm not uh, his close confidant at all. I've just spent a lot of time with him and around him, and I think he's a decent guy. But I know that he's created a, perso- a nice guy persona around him, which just helps him to groove his way through a crowded place. Over the course of those those years that you that you've interviewed him, and that you, maybe that you got a sense of when you were collating the book together, did you get any sense of of him changing? Is he more kind of comfortable now than he was in the kind of 80s and 90s? Is there any sense of him getting older? He's, he's changed a bit. Oddly enough, I don't have a strong sense of that. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I notice differences in the tone of his voice often, particularly in later years, I'd have, had to do, I'd have to do an interview on the phone because he, he was abroad or he was in the car or something. And, and so it's the tone of somebody's voice that you start to notice. You know, he's a man who's aged very well especially since he stopped dying his <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I wish I'd had the nerve to give him that advice years and years before, but I didn't have the nerve. So I noticed the tone of his voice, like a slight elderly hesitancy getting into it. And it makes me a little sad because it's just an intimation of mortality, you know, which is, which is affecting all of us. But I, having spent so many years listening to Paul's voice on a tape, transcribing it over and over, I'm quite attuned to the, to the tone of that voice. I think the other thing is that his repertoire of stories has rather solidified now. If I can claim credit for anything, I, I think I was somebody who helped him to form that repertoire in 1989 and 90, because those were the first occasions on which he had to sit down and think analytically about under certain headings of his, of his life and identify key points in it. And having done that, I think he thought, I've got my CV now, I've whittled it down to these 10 bullet points. And I've found that, I mean, as recently as, say, the Rick Rubin TV series, I would think I know what's coming next, you know, <laughs> because I, okay, we're on to Paul McCartney story five, Paul McCartney 5B. There is, a, there is an element to that, but as many interviews as he does, 
the, the stories are still new to a lot of people. James Corden, actually, that's another good example. People thought, it's a revelation. He's been this open and this candid and let it be. He's talking about his actual mother, Mert. I mean, come on. You know, yeah. Well, I mean, I know that you and I are not average people in terms of our <laughs> obsessive devotion. Just to, to kind of conclude on a, on a light note, before we spoke, I was looking through some of the stuff that you worked on, and you you did some the sleeve notes for the the Kisses on the Bottom album. Oh, yeah. And I was curious to, I, I've heard you tell a story before, which hopefully you can, you can share again now. There was some um, reticence from some people around him about the title of, of that album. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I do know there was some um, discourse within, the, within his organisation. He has quite a few people around him in, in MPL, as well as the band. Where, where, where was I? I think it was, might have been, it was some sort of party. It was an MPL party. And um, somebody said to me that he was going to call this. I knew, I knew what kind of album he was making. Um, and somebody told me it was going to be called Kisses on the Bottom. And I was aghast, actually. <laughs> this was before I'd been approached to do the sleeve notes. And um, I thought, oh, blind, that's going to take a bit of explaining to the world in general, isn't it? I knew enough about the songs to know that it was a direct lift from one of the old 40s standards. It wasn't a kind of gratuitously pervy sort of title. I knew where it had come from, but all the same, I thought that's going to be a difficult sell, isn't it? Anyway, I was talking to Paul himself later in this party, and he was saying, do you know what? A lot of people don't like my title, Kisses on the Bottom. But what I say to them is, I remember lots of people didn't like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh no, Paul, they said to me, you won't get away with calling an LP Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Blah, 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 blah. And this is a device he falls back on, you know, no matter what kind of pushback he encounters, he can remember having that kind of um, uh, debate, even at the height of the Beatles. I'm sure he did. Uh, EMI, I'm sure, were sceptical about the title. Uh, Brian Epstein, I'm sure, was sceptical about the title and so on and so on. But uh, his view is that I don't mind a bit of to and fro, I'll give and take, but if I like something that I'm not going <laughs> to concede, you know, it, as I said before, you know, he will think, after all, I am Paul McCartney. You're not. <laughs> what a brilliant way to end. Paul, yeah, it just remains to say thanks uh, so much for your time. The book is Conversations with McCartney. Thanks again. Pleasure. Thank you, Joe.